Welcome, everyone. I want to thank everyone for joining us for our podcast called The Checkup today. We have a special guest, Dr. Rick DeShazo. Dr. DeShazo is an emeritus professor as a part of our faculty here, but has a phenomenal history, both as an academic physician, but one who's had a keen interest in both civil rights as well as dealing with the issues of racism. I really look forward to this time, Dr. Rick, and I'd like to start by giving you the opportunity to introduce yourself to our audience. First, a little bit about sort of who you are in your professional career, and then secondly, a personal note of how you became interested in the civil rights movement in equity and healthcare. Okay, well, thank you, and thank you for inviting me to be here today. I've been looking forward to this, and I'd love to chat with you on this particular topic. I presently am emeritus from University of Mississippi Medical Center, where I had been for about 20 years as the chair of medicine there. And during that period of time, I had an opportunity to get to know the surviving members of the civil rights movement in Mississippi. And once I got to know them, I realized that they were leaders in the national civil rights movement, and that much of what happened in Mississippi was what guided us toward the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So during my latter years at Ole Miss, I was able to spend a lot of time with some of these folks. And I already had a connection with civil rights from growing up here in Birmingham. I was raised in Norwood, which is on the north side of town in a stone's throw of Cottageville. Tell me as you you went through your journey of training in medicine. What were the things that you observed that gave you some sense that the of racism as it existed in society also carried over to healthcare? Well, I must say that I had a very different view of race in medicine than most of the other students in my class at UAB. I was in the graduating class of 1971, and there was one African-American male in our class who was one of the first ones to attend here. Most of the students had come from state universities, and the majority of them had never had a black friend, so they really didn't know how to deal with this. And when we got on the wards, I noticed that many of them were very uncomfortable in getting close to black patients, especially if they weren't well-dressed, weren't obviously clean. Whereas I, not that I was a good person, but I was just perfectly comfortable with that because I had started my interactions with UAB as a high school student. Sterling Edwards, who was the chief of thoracic surgery here, for a long time was a Phillips High School graduate, and that's where I went to high school. Of course, Phillips High School is very big in the Birmingham movement because Fred Shuttlesworth was beaten there when he tried to get his daughter enrolled in my high school in 1957. And so I had known that when I went to Phillips. And then I went to Birmingham Southern, and I didn't realize at the time I went to Birmingham Southern College that it was that a number of the students there were involved in the civil rights efforts here in Birmingham. There had been an organization between students from Birmingham Southern, Miles College, and Payne College, 
And they actually started around 1964, 65, some of the original boycott efforts of merchants in Birmingham. They got in a lot of trouble for it. When I got to Birmingham Southern in 1965 as a pre-ministerial student, because I was really interested in going to the ministry at that time, I had been working as a youth director in various churches around the Birmingham area. But as I matriculated through, I found a group of students who were actively involved and tried to work with them on some of the projects that they were doing to be inclusive and recruit some African-American students to Birmingham Southern. And each summer, I would come over to UAB and work in the lab, first for Dr. Edwards and subsequently for Dr. Kirkland. And that was another learning experience before I ever got to medical school. Yeah, and and that's a consistent theme, Rick. I, I think whether with Dr. Blaylock at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Kirkland at UAB, or Christian Bernard in South Africa, they each had African experimental surgeons who were phenomenal technicians who by all means had things been favorable or allowed them to pursue medicine would have been surgeons but they did the surgical design and work and often trained many of the surgeons who came through those labs. And so, yes, that's a common thread across the country where you found prominent surgeons selecting typically African-American as technicians who by other means would have been physicians themselves who were brilliant in what they did and doing. So those exposures obviously helped shape your view of what you knew, both the false narrative of the time of the day, and they've also obviously shaped your view of continually sort of pushing the boundaries of making sure the issues of traditional classism and racism no longer serves itself in our current society. Let me ask you this, in light of what you saw, and we'll obviously get to a book that you edited, what memories were triggered and what thoughts were brought to the table when you saw George Floyd's death and when you saw Ahmaud Arbery's death? What things came to your mind when these events in 2020 resurfaced when supposedly we were a country that were far beyond these issues? There was no surprise on my part whatsoever. I had been an intern in the UAB emergency room and I took extra emergency room rotations because I knew that I was about to be drafted into the Army. And I thought I would end up in a trauma unit somewhere where most were going as GMOs. And I heard from, because I was comfortable with African-Americans equals, they picked up on that pretty quickly when they came in the emergency room, that I actually loved them just as much as I love my other patients. And so when I was sewing up wounds on the surgical side of the emergency room here, we'd get in conversations. And I realized for the first time that the majority of those people coming in hadn't been in fights with somebody in their neighborhood. They'd been beaten up by the cops. And they were very hesitant to talk about that. But we got to talking, some of them who came in multiple times, and I realized how brutal the police were in Birmingham. And it certainly reflected what we had seen during the movement with dogs and fire hoses and everything else. So I am sorry to say I was not surprised. And I continue not to be surprised because even in the military, 
I saw some of that discrimination, much less so than here, but much to be a surprise. Rick, there's been an author who probably, I think, has framed this in a way that we have not traditionally thought about it, but Isabel Wickerson, who is a New York Times author and has written a number of really bestsellers, her most recent book, which she said she struggled to write, but felt she needed to write it, was called Cast. And she does a pretty remarkable job of demonstrating that the two most prominent caste systems of our lifetime were in India and America. And the narrative that's obviously spun about the way of life of America was this is our way of life, not that it was a caste system, which I think everybody tends to think, well, we're better than that. We wouldn't do that. Do you think we actually had a caste system in America in the context of related? Yes, I do. And I think physicians were responsible for that because it starts with the University of Pennsylvania and the famous Dr. Morton and his skull collections in the 1820s. Mm. That was the beginning of scientific racism in a general sense throughout the country because he measured the size of skulls by putting in mostly BBs into the crania and decided that black people had smaller brains than white people on the basis of the number of BBs they could have. So you've had a remarkable career as you've grown through and seen and observed a great deal both in the South and as an academic leader who's trained other physicians and also lived through a lot of the civil rights era. Tell me, how did you begin the work to write this book that's entitled The Racial Divide in American Medicine, Black Physicians in the Struggle for Justice and Healthcare? What were the beginning sort of parts of getting to this book and, and what led you to it to start this? The beginning of that book started with an encounter I had with Tinsley Harrison. I was in the last class that Dr. Harrison still took a report from junior medical students here. And for whatever reason, I think the reason is that I had to present him a case, and the previous two people who'd presented cases the previous two weeks had been kicked out of the room because their hair was too long. And I didn't want to be embarrassed. So I went to his son, who was actually an oral surgeon in medical school, I said, what can I do to make Dr. Harrison like me? Because I don't want to be embarrassed. I'm not the only student here from any other place than Alabama and Auburn, and I'm already in a minority. And he said, well, have you read his book? I said, yeah, I've read his book. He said he'd written a book about his heart attack. So I just changed the names, and he fell in love with me there. And he subsequently arranged for me to go to England. And the purpose of that was for me to see how bad national health was, because that was the time that people were beginning to talk about socialized medicine. And they wanted some folks to be able to combat that who'd actually experienced it. And I went to St. George's Hospital in London and spent about three months with Aubrey Leatham, who invented the Leatham stethoscope. He was one of the most preeminent and a very close friend of every cardiologist that was in academic medicine. And I thought it was great. And the reason I thought national health was great is everybody had health care. It didn't make any difference what language they spoke because there were people speaking all kinds of languages, what color they were. They all got health care, and there was no discrimination about who got what. 
the poorest person could see Dr. Lethem as a consultant if they needed to be seen by him. So I brought that back in the back of my head. And as I began to think about what I was seeing as a program director of residency programs in internal medicine at South Alabama and the University of Mississippi, and having done something similar at Tulane as an educator, that same discussion was going on among many students because we were using black African-Americans as learning tools. They were the majority of our patients because they were getting segregated health care. They didn't have any money, so they got diverted our way. And many of the students that I knew beginning to ask the question, what's going on here? How could a profession that has to say all this stuff about what we're going to do on behalf of our patients, be doing this kind of stuff to our patients. We would see the patient on the teaching service get care from us, and the patient on the attending service get direct care from some guy who was uh, a world's expert. So that's carried with me all the way through my career. Yeah, you highlight one of the other factors that's subtly part of our history is that the amount of African-American talent that's left our states is pretty amazing. And if you look at heroes at multiple levels, many have, were part of the Great Migration. Again, Isabel Wilkinson's book called The Warmth of Other Sons, that many found no real place for their talents in the South and left because of the so-called way of life or caste system, if you would. And so you identified 25 who stayed and fought the battle. Our time is ending, but in brief, what message should we take from this book from those 25 physicians? It is possible to do great things if you have courage. And the courage of your convictions is what separates you from being a physician and a good physician. And these people all had it. All of these people were family medicine people because they could not get membership in the AMA. Therefore, they could not get hospital privileges. So they were stuck in an outpatient situation where they could only see outpatients and refer their black patients to a white doctor when they needed to, to be hospitalized. That took courage to deal with that, negotiate that pathway. And if there's any question about whether they were smart, the way they handled it shows up in this book. Outstanding. Well, Dr. Rick, you have a great story. You're still defining your legacy through the work you do here, the papers you write, and the advocacy you take for the continual change in our culture for good. I think our audience have been blessed and appreciate hearing your history. But most of all, hearing your convictions are ground the issues of racism that we suffer today and that we suffered in the past, and that you have made a tangible difference, not only through the book, but many of the papers and the activities you carry on here as a part of our faculty. Thank you very much for participating. I'm sure we'll get you back again at some time, but it's been a really great conversation about your book, but also your life as you have evolved through the Deep South as an academic leader. Thank you. Thank you.